Good morning. As we continue to worship through the preaching of God's Word, uh, would you open with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 22? Luke chapter 22. Uh, this morning in our time, we'll focus on verses 31 through 34. If you're using one of the Bibles that are provided underneath the, pew, or underneath the seat, um, you can find it on page 882. Luke 22, 31 through 34. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. Several years ago, I had a conversation with someone, and unfortunately, they were explaining to me why they no longer believed um, that a Christian was kept for eternity. They now believed um, that a true Christian could, in fact, lose their salvation. And the reason that he was telling me this story is he relayed to me something about a pastor that he knew. And and this pastor, he he had ministered for 30 years. He presumably had known Christ much longer than that. And tragically, one day came where he denied the faith entirely. And so that um, led this person to believe that a true Christian could indeed lose their salvation, likely because he respected this man, um, that he had learned from this man. But with any scenario that we come across like that, any, any question um, that we have regarding what the Bible teaches, we all, always must return to the Scriptures to see what the testimony of Scripture is, to follow the example of the Bereans, who when Paul preached to them, they examined the Scriptures for themselves to see if these things were true. And when we look at the Scriptures, I think we'll find that someone who is regenerated by the Spirit of God will be kept for eternity that a Christian cannot, in fact, lose their salvation. Just a few verses bear witness to this testimony. John 10, 28 through 30 says, I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Philippians 1, 6 says, and I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. In Romans 8, 29 and 30, we see, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. And of these texts that bear witness to this truth, my personal favorite has to be the text that we're in this morning, Luke 22, 31 to 34. And in this text, the main idea that is taught to us is this. If you are Christian, you will persevere in faith because Christ intercedes for you. If you are Christian, you will persevere in faith because Christ intercedes for you. And this truth, we're going to unpack that main idea I'm in three points. The first one being we have an enemy in verse 31. Number two, we have an intercessor in verse 32. And finally, we have an example 
in verses 33 and 34. And so as we come to to this text, we're entering in to the end of Luke's narrative um, of the gospel. And so anytime we come into a book like this, we need to set it uh, within its context. And so as we come to these verses, I'll admit when I was studying this, it almost seemed as though this story came out of nowhere, as though it didn't really have any connection with the stories that come before it and after it. But if we look at the structure of the book as a whole, I think um, it will come out where exactly these verses fit in. Because at the beginning, Luke offers a prologue where he introduces his purpose and his audience. And after a short narrative of Jesus' birth, he spends most of the book, 19 chapters about, dealing with the ministry of Jesus, both in Galilee and his uh, travel to Jerusalem, and finally his ministry in Jerusalem. But once we get to chapter 22, Luke shifts his narrative from Jesus' ministry into his passion, into the narrative of his death. And we see that transition uh, beginning in Luke 22, verse 14, where Luke says, And when the hour came, he reclined at table, referring to Jesus, and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And so at this time, he institutes the Lord's Supper. He tells the disciples about his impending death. And these next few stories after this about these conversations about who is the greatest, our text this morning about Peter's denial, um, the fulfillment of Scripture, and, and his preparation uh, for him to leave. This is what he's doing. He's preparing the disciples for his departure. And so as we come into verse 31, I will enter into our first point, that being we have an enemy. And so right at the beginning, Jesus captures Peter's attention. You'll notice that he refers to him here as Simon. This is the name that he had before uh, Jesus renamed him, calling him Peter. So the fact that he's using this name, he says it twice for emphasis, and then he says, behold, which is another way where we might say, look or listen up or something like that. So all of that together, he's really capturing uh, the disciples' attention. He wants them to listen to what he's saying. And so the first thing that he says is Satan. So he's telling them exactly who this enemy is. And, he, and if we uh, look at the, to the testimony of Scripture, what we'll see is, is that there's much that is said about who our enemy is and what it is um, that he desires. I mean, 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, Paul tells us that he is the God of this world that blinds the minds of unbelievers. And later, Peter in 1 Peter 5.8 says, Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. So what we recognize here is that our enemy is, is not indifferent, and nor is he uh, impotent or, or not powerful. And because of that testimony, this is what Joel Beakey says um, about the testimony of Scripture regarding our enemy. In summary, the biblical vocabulary for the devil portrays him as a being of intense hatred against God and his people, complete moral corruption and wicked influence, and great power and authority over the demons and this world of fallen men. And even the highest of the angels recognizes this truth. You know, we see a, a peculiar conversation in Jude, right, in, in verse 9. Look at what it says there. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, and he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, 
but said, the Lord rebuke you. So even the highest of the angels recognizes that our enemy is not one to be trifled with. He doesn't even rebuke Satan himself. Rather, he says, the Lord rebuke you. And yet we see what Jesus says next. He says, Satan demanded to have you. So although our enemy, yes, is absolutely powerful and is not to be taken lightly, he is not a sovereign. He is not all-powerful, and he cannot act unilaterally. He requires God's permission, his sovereign decree, for every single action that he commits in this world as one um, who seeks to take it captive. This is why Joel Beakey says, Christians must not succumb to an ultimate dualism in which God and Satan are two equal but opposite eternal powers acting on the same level. The devil and his demons are fallen angels, created by God and still subject to his decree and providence. A demon has no power to do anything unless his being is preserved by God, his action permitted by God, and the result decreed from the throne of God. And we see no clearer example of this than in the opening chapters of the book of Job, where Satan appears before the throne of God, and God suggests, have you considered my servant Job? And refers to the fact that, that Job is blameless and upright. And Satan challenges God on this point and said, well, look at the hedge of protection that you've put around him. Look at the way that you've prospered him. If you were to take this all away, then Job would surely curse you. And of course, we see that God gives Satan permission to take all that Job has, even to take his children from him. And yet Job says, the Lord has given and the Lord has taken away. He remains faithful. And so Satan appears before the throne of God again. And God reminds him of Job's faithfulness. He says, well, skin for skin. You can take everything that someone has as long as you preserve their life. And so if you afflict Job's body, then he will certainly curse you. And so God gives Satan permission to afflict uh, Job with illness, with the stipulation that his life must be preserved. And though Job becomes very sick, even his wife tells him that he should curse God and die. And yet Job says, shall we receive good from the Lord and not evil? And so we see there with every single affliction that Satan wants to enact against Job, he requires God's sovereign permission to do so. And so in the next part of the verse, um, Jesus tells us what exactly it is that this enemy wants to do. But first we notice who it is that Satan wants to attack. He says, Satan demanded to have you. Now, as as we look at that, we would certainly think that he's referring to Peter because that's who he addresses initially. But if we look at the Greek text, what we'll notice is that you there is in the plural. So Satan doesn't just want Peter, although his attacks will um, focus heavily on Peter, but that he wants all of the disciples, every one of them. And Jesus uses this illustration, sift you like wheat, to refer to what it is that Satan wants to do. And so sifting wheat, what that was is it was a process by which wheat was separated from chaff. So what they would do is they would take these bundles and they would put them into a sifter and they would shake it up, which would separate the wheat from the chaff. And that illustration is often used to refer to separating what's real or what's desirable from what is is not real or that which is undesirable. 
Matter of fact, Amos, when he's prophesying to, about the uh, impending destruction of Israel, he uses this illustration to um, demonstrate that God is actually, through that judgment, preserving a remnant. In Amos 9.9, 9, he says, For behold, I will command and shake the house of Israel among all the nations as one shakes with a seed, but no pebble shall fall to the earth. So in that illustration, what Jesus is telling them is that what Satan wants to do to you is he wants to afflict you in order to prove that your faith is not really real, that you're not the real thing. That When you come under trial, that what will happen is that you will cave and your faith will be proven to be chaff, nothing more. And something else that this illustration tells us is that sifting wheat was not a labor-intensive task. It was not difficult for anyone to do. So not only does Satan want to do this to the disciples, and it would be all too easy for him to accomplish this. So how are the disciples supposed to respond here? What are they supposed to think in response to the revelation that Satan wants to sift you like wheat, and there's nothing that you can do to stop it? Look at what Jesus says next. But I, like that emphatic um, emphasis on uh, the disciples' attention needs to be pointed back not to their circumstances, not what Satan is going to do, but to him. It's so easy to look over a word like this, just as a small transition word, but it's just so important because the phrase, in my opinion, but God, may be one of the most comforting phrases in the Bible because it opens us up to some of the most comforting truths in Scripture. And that truth that we see next is our second point. We have an intercessor. Christ is the one um, to whom we find, in whom we find our hope. And so he, in pointing them to the work of Christ, we need to recognize that that work is prophesied all throughout the Old Testament. The disciples are aware of this, is that he is revealed in terms of three separate offices, and that is prophet, priest, and king. And although they are individual offices, Christ fulfills those as one person. But specifically here, he's referring to his office of priest. And so the priesthood was the group who represented the people before God. They were responsible for the worship of Israel. And within the priesthood, there was one particular role, and it was that of the high priest. And his primary responsibility was to represent the people on the Day of Atonement, when they were to offer sacrifices for sin. And not only was... Um, the high priest responsible for offering the sacrifice, there was a second role associated with that. And it was that of intercession, right? That of praying for the people that he is offering the sacrifices for. And so the book of Hebrews, I'm in chapter five, as it tells us how Christ fulfills the role of high priest, you'll notice in those first 10 verses that both the role of offering the sacrifice and the role of intercession are referred to. Hebrews chapter 5, beginning in verse 1, it says, For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and the wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes his honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, 
but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, You are a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a priest or a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. And so you'll notice in these verses, it says close to the beginning that he offered sacrifices for sins. And then later in the text, we see that Jesus offers up prayers and supplications. So after, as the role of high priest, he offers sacrifices of himself, and he makes intercession for those that he has offered the sacrifices for. And so in referring to his intercession here in Luke 22, we see four aspects of that particular role or four characteristics of it. The first being that Christ's intercession is perpetual, meaning that it's ongoing. Notice what Jesus says here, I have prayed for you. Now, this is in the past tense. Likely the referent here that this particular prayer is in direct opposition to the demand that Satan makes to sift them like wheat. The reason that it will prove to be a failure on the part of Satan is because Christ has interceded regarding that particular scenario. But Christ's prayer is not simply limited to that. Just a few uh, moments later, as recorded in John 17, when Jesus goes into the Garden of Gethsemane, we see that he prays for the disciples again. In John 17, 15, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. And his intercession doesn't stop there. When Jesus enters into his glory, right, we see that he sits down at the right hand of God and that that intercession continues forever. Hebrews chapter 7, beginning in verse 23 it says, the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds the priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. A William Bridge in his book, Comfort and Holiness from Christ's Priestly Work, I think states this reality beautifully. This is what he says. He was at work for you before the world began. Then he came down to earth and here spent all his time for you. And now that he has gone to heaven, the text says, he always lives to make intercession for you. He spends all his eternity for you. Oh, the Lord Jesus does not begrudge to spend eternity for my soul. So not only is Christ's intercession perpetual, it's also particular. Notice that he says here, but I have prayed for you. Now, earlier we noticed that um, Christ was referring not just to Peter, but to all of the disciples in verse 31. But in verse 32, Jesus gets particular where the you there changes um, into the singular. And so what we recognize from that is that Christ's prayer is particular. And the implication is that Christ does not intercede for everyone. What we see in John 17, 9, listen to what Jesus says here in his high priestly prayer. I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. I do not ask for these only, 
but also for those who will believe in me through their word. And so as the high priest who has an inseparable role of offering the sacrifice for sin and interceding on behalf of those sinners, Christ's intercession is limited to the elect, those for whom he has died and those for whom he intercedes. And when we encounter a truth like this, we have to look at the examples in Scripture, I think, that solidify that and bring that out. I mean, I think we'll find that if we contrast the way in which Jesus deals with Peter, who would deny him, as opposed to how he deals with Judas, who would betray him. In John 13, we have this story I'm in the upper room where Jesus tells of his impending betrayal. And listen to what he says here. He says, After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table close to Jesus. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is he whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. Now notice these verses. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, What are you going to do? Whatever what you are going to do, do quickly. Now no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast, that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. Jesus responds to Judas regarding his betrayal, what you are going to do, do quickly. Judas here is being left to his own desires to do what it is that Judas wants to do because he was a lover of money. And so even after hearing this, Judas still leaves out and goes to betray Jesus. But we take that and we compare it to what Jesus says here to Peter. Because we know, based on Jesus' prophecy and the later testimony of Scripture, that Peter does deny Jesus, just as it was spoken. But what does he say to him? Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. So we see the difference between these two, that Christ's prayer is particular. So how are we to respond to a truth like that? Because I think, I know this is true in my own life, that the first impulse is to have this maybe Olympian posture where we begin with all of these questions and objections, discussions and debates. And certainly there, there is a place for that as we seek to understand the depths of Scripture. But I think we need to follow the example of the Apostle Paul. After he ends his monumental argument on sovereign election and the salvation of Israel in Romans 9 through 11, listen to how he ends. In Romans 11, beginning in verse 33, he says, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how unscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. So Paul begins and ends with worship. 
because he recognizes that the, the goal of theology is always doxology. It is to end with us ascribing the glory to God that is revealed through those doctrines. So what we see next about Christ's intercession is that it is effectual. Because he says next, I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And so as Jesus prays this, there there is an objection um, to this observation. It's effectual that needs to be answered. It's a legitimate question that deserves a legitimate answer. Because it may be objected to this that, well, wait a minute. You're saying that Christ's prayer is effectual, but we know based on what Jesus says next that Peter does deny the Lord, that before the rooster crows, he does deny him three times. So how can I say that the prayer is effectual because Peter's faith does seem to fail? And so in order to answer that, I think we have to look at the word here that is translated fail. It's the word eclipse. And you may recognize this word because it's where we get our English word eclipse. This particular word is actually a compound that comes from two separate words, the first of which is ek. And it's a word that means um, out, uh, from out or out of. And the second is lepo, which means to leave. So very woodenly, this could be uh, translated as, I have prayed for you that your faith may not leave out from you. And so what Jesus is saying here is not that Peter's faith will not fail at all, because we know that it does, but that his faith will not fail completely, that his faith will not leave out from him. It will not disappear, even though it will fail to some extent. And another reason I I think that that's the accurate understanding here is because what Jesus says right after that, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail and when. So he doesn't say and if, as if he's calling into question whether or not Peter's faith is going to fail. Peter's faith will fail, but it will not fail completely. Jesus guarantees that uh, the remnant of faith that is there will be preserved, and as we'll see in just a moment, will be built up again. But what about Peter's sin? So we know that he denies the Lord. So what about that? I mean, is that simply ignored by Jesus? Is it overlooked in his prayer that that Peter's faith won't fail as though it promotes some sort of antinomianism? I don't think that's the case because the fourth aspect of Christ's intercession is that it is comprehensive. So after he says, I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail, he says, and when you have turned. So when Jesus prays that Peter's faith will not disappear or give out. Everything, it comprehends everything that is associated with Peter continuing in faith. And the first thing that he talks about here is Peter's repentance. And when you have turned again. And we know that Peter does repent of his denial because when he's restored in John 21, beginning in verse 15, this is what happens. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, 
Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he had said to him a third time, do you love me? And said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. So Jesus prophesied that Peter would deny him three times, and he does. But that's also the purpose of him asking him three times, do you love me? And so Peter reiterating his love for the Lord three times and acknowledging um, that Jesus knows that to be true because he knows the heart is uh, indicative that Peter was indeed repentant, that his faith did not fail because he did turn again. And finally, look at what Jesus says at the end of verse 32. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. So his prayer that Peter's faith won't fail also comprehends his subsequent obedience. And and I think this is such an important point for us to realize because I know there, there are many who, maybe not to the extent that Peter did, or maybe so, we have also experienced falls and failures of our faith to to one extent or another. But the error that we don't want to fall into is that that failure, when we repent of that and we're restored by Christ because of his intercessory work, makes us useless in the kingdom. Now, certainly it is true that depending on the, the nature of the fall, there may be some offices that one is disqualified for, but every member of a church is gifted by the Spirit And those gifts are not given uselessly. It's that they are to be used in accordance with the measure that the Spirit gives. So repentant sinners, far from being useless in the kingdom, are used greatly by God. And we see that in the life of Peter, right? Whereas Peter's fall was probably the worst among the bunch, even though they did all fall the night that Jesus died. And yet Peter was the one who Jesus used to strengthen that group and to use them as the foundation of the church that he was building, um, as we see in the book of Acts, where Peter is primarily the leader. And in verse 33 brings us to our third and final point, is we have an example. In verse 33, Peter responds to what Jesus has said to him. And he says, Lord, I am ready to go with you, both to prison and to death. And on the surface, it may seem as though Peter in his characteristic arrogance and pride that we see all through the Gospels, that he's just making another braggadocious statement of what he was willing to do. But I don't think that's the case here. I think Peter is genuine in his statement that he will follow Jesus into prison and into death. Because as a matter of fact, he does. We see this in the rest of Scripture. I'm in Acts 12. Verses 4 and 5, speaking of Herod, and it says, And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison. And so Peter, and this is just one of several times, the Bible records of Peter's time in prison. So he does follow Jesus into prison, and ultimately he follows him into death. Again, in John 21, where Peter's restored in verse 18, Jesus says, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you were old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. And Jesus elaborates on what he's telling Peter or John. I'm elaborates on this 
by saying, this he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. And we have in, not recorded in scripture, but in reliable church tradition, that Peter ultimately was crucified upside down as he saw himself unworthy to die the same death as Jesus. And so he does follow Jesus into prison and death. So if that's the case, what's wrong with his statement here? What is it that he says uh, where he's off track? And I think it's where he says, I am ready. I am ready to follow you. Because if we turn over um, just a few verses later into to verse 54 in Luke 22, we see what happens. It says, then, Jesus, or, then they seized him and led him away, bringing him to the high priest's house, and Peter was following at a distance. And so immediately we see, Peter says, I'm ready. I'm ready to follow you into prison and death. And yet when Jesus is taken away, Peter's not right there with him. He's following behind, watching at a distance. And when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. Then a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light and looking closely at him, said, this man was also with him. And Peter's response, but he denied it, saying, woman, I do not know him. A little later, someone else saw him and said, you are also one of them. But Peter said, man, I am not. And after an interval of about an hour, still another insisted, saying, certainly this man also was with him, for he too is a Galilean. But Peter said, man, I do not know what you were talking about. And here we have probably, in my opinion, one of the most heartbreaking verses in all of Scripture. And immediately while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And look at this. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. So I can't even imagine what was going through Peter's mind other than what the scriptures here tell us. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord. So the moment that he makes eye contact with Jesus after his third denial, this conversation in Luke 22, 31 to 34, this is the conversation that comes to his mind, where, he, where, and then where he remembers what was said, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. And so when Peter makes this statement that he's ready to follow the Lord into prison and death, Jesus' response here prophesying that the rooster will not crow until he denies him, given what we know about what happens to Peter later, I think it's almost as though Jesus is saying, yes, Peter, you will. You will follow me into prison and death, but not yet. There's something that's going to happen to you first, is that Satan is going to sift you like wheat. And what that's going to look like in your case is that before the rooster crows, you're going to deny three times that you know me. But don't lose heart, because I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, Strengthen the brethren. And so as we look at the example of Peter, I think there's a, there's a question that arises. Jesus tells him that he will follow him, but not until he's sifted by Satan. And so it's almost as though when it, when it says Satan demanded to have you, we would expect for God's response to be, no, absolutely not. You cannot sift one of my people. And yet that's not what happens here. Satan is allowed to sift Peter, and he does. And so the, the question that arises is why? Why does God allow 
Help us to come under the, these trials and afflictions. And I think for Peter, what we have to do is return to that um, analogy that Jesus uses at the beginning, that reference to being sifted like wheat. Because remember, what that was about was um, an illustration that demonstrated, okay, this is what is real and this is what is not. And so while Satan's purpose in the sifting is to prove that Peter's faith is a sham, that it's not real, what God is doing through that is what we see in the Gospels. We see that Peter is presumptuous, that he's arrogant, that he's outspoken, always speaking out of turn. And this is the chaff, that, that, that light cover that surrounds the wheat it's this light you know, sin, this indwelling sin that surrounds his faith. So what is happening here is that God is allowing Peter to be sifted in order to blow that chaff away, in order to remove the arrogance and the presumption and the pride, in order to prepare him for what he was going to have him do next, which was going to require a more mature faith. And this is what God does when he allows us to, to come under these trials. Because we're, we're told this in Romans 8. The Apostle Paul reminds us, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Far from saying that all things are good, it's that the good and the bad are taken to work together in order to fulfill God's purpose for us, which is to make us more like Christ, as we're told in the next verse. So as we seek to apply the intercession of Christ um, to our lives, let's return for just a moment um, to the story I told you about the, the conversation that I had about uh, the pastor who ultimately and tragically fell away from the faith. Hopefully we've seen from this text that if you are a Christian, that you will persevere in faith because Christ intercedes. And so someone who is regenerate cannot totally and finally fall away. So given that that's the case, what happened in that scenario after 30 years of ministry to finally fall away? What happened there? And I think we find the answer in 1 John 2.19, where John explains this tragic reality of apostasy. He says, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. So this is what happens in the scenario of apostasy, is that no matter how long it's been, no matter what false evidence a person seems to give, is that if someone totally and finally falls away from the faith, it is because they were never converted to begin with. And this text, I think, has massive implications for our understanding of assurance of salvation. And maybe you're here this morning, and that's a particular struggle for you, as it was for me for many years. And so let me ask you a question. Are you today believing in Christ? Now, notice that the question is not, have you believed at some point in the past? The question is not, how long have you believed up until this point? The question is, are you believing right now? 
Because remember what John says in 1 John 5, 13. I write these things to you who believe, believe, present tense, in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And so if the answer to that question is yes, I am believing, be encouraged. Because he who began a good work in you will finish it. But also in this text, there's a warning. Is that our continuation in faith is evidence that Christ intercedes for us and that his spirit is working in us. But if at any point we fall away and we deny the faith, that is evidence that we were never of the people of God to begin with. But if that answer is yes, I am believing today. Hold fast to the truth um, that we have been taught here in Luke 22. That if you are believing, that you will continue in, in a full and comprehensive faith and you will endure to the end because Christ intercedes for you. Your faith cannot fail because Christ cannot fail in his work. Let's pray. Father, your name is great. You are glorious and majestic. At your word, men are stunned. You are to be feared. No one can stand before you. Thank you that Christ is able to save us to the uttermost, since he always lives to make intercession for us. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace and ask you to sanctify us by the truth that we have heard this morning. Your word is truth. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.